Tonight, I would like to give an overview of this practice path and also in this look at one specific quality which supports the arising of insight and at the same time is also a result of insight and that's equanimity, gelassenheit oder gleichmut. It's quite useful to understand this keyword. (laughs) 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 And here I'd like to approach it by looking at the so-called eight winds of the world or eight winds of changing circumstances of pleasure and pain, of luck and misfortune. I would like to begin with the haiku by Santoka Taneda, which summarizes the content of this talk. Good news, bad news, spring snow falls. I would also like to look at the quite basic aspect of our practice, meditation practice and daily living. It's the way we meet, the way we relate to the ongoing flow of moment-to-moment experience, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and at how we tie ourselves into knots and suffer, or how we can respond in a way that is freeing, that is liberating. So to begin with, it seems helpful to look and remind ourselves of what we really want in life on the deepest level of our being. What it is that we really all wish for. And that, in fact, isn't too mysterious. We ourselves, just like all beings without exception, want to be happy and don't want to suffer. Not even a tiny little bit if we have a choice. We want to be happy. Everything in the world, including spirituality, everything in life, follows from that. Happiness is what we're always after all day long in all we do, in all our thoughts, speech, actions. And it's really appropriate. We should be happy. We deserve to be happy. And yet when we look at how much suffering there is in life, in this world, in terms of wars and conflicts and unnecessary hunger and disease and social injustice, or in terms of the endless inner suffering of humans, It looks like we haven't been very clever, haven't been very successful in our endeavor to be happy, isn't it? Since everybody wants it, why does it not work? What's the problem? This talk is an attempt to look into this. Whether we like it or not, experience, life is a ongoing 
unceasing flow of pleasure and pain, as we can see very well in, in our meditation. Or to be more detailed, it's a succession of either blissful, pleasant, neutral, unpleasant, or painful experience. Experience which arise in connection with our bodies, with our senses, in different situations, with different people, within our mind, in thoughts, feelings, emotions. Pleasure and pain, that's an inevitable fact of life, a reality so unshakable that if we don't like it, we're in trouble. We have to find ourselves another world. And uh, I don't know where we can find one. A great deal of these experiences of pleasure and pain, which seem to be the problem in terms of our trying to be happy, they come to us packaged as what in Buddhist tradition is called the eight winds of the world, sometimes the eight storms of the world or winds of changing circumstances. And these eight worldly winds are success and failure, praise and blame, good reputation or good name, and bad reputation, bad name, and gain and loss. And since Buddhists have many lists, different lists, so some lists have also health, and sickness, or wealth and poverty. They are events that life constantly produces for us, wished for or dreaded. And like the wind, they can come suddenly, unpredictably, and from any of the eight directions, often from opposite directions at the same time. So let's look at them, pair by pair. Success and failure. We can be exposed to success and failure in our work, in our relationships, in tests or exams. It can be in sports or competitions, games. It can actually be in any situation at any time as soon as we set up an expectation or hope or approach something with fear, or as soon as we bring fixed ideas about how things should turn out into living events, living situations. For example, perhaps we sit here in meditation and we make the appropriate effort, and we are of course not expecting any specific experience to arise, but if that deep, calm, and pleasant state we had yesterday would come back, we wouldn't mind. And surprise, it does. So there's this sense of well-being and perhaps a sense of success. It worked. Good. Maybe even I did it. Ten minutes later, sleepiness sets in. The energy drops. How disappointing. And we know that things like that do happen. And yet so often a sense of failure creeps in. I failed. Or just failure. Or perhaps we're walking 
And for God knows what reason, we decided that we should be able to stay mindfully present for one length of our walking path. And we find that we can actually manage two without getting lost too much. Great. What a success. But perhaps for some other reason, we decide that we should be able to stay mindful and present for six lengths of our walking path. And we find that we can actually do two without getting lost. Now, you see, now it's too bad. Now we failed. It's the exact same amount of unbroken mindfulness we have. But depending on how we set ourselves up, it's a success or a failure. Same experience, different expectation, different feeling results. But whether we set ourselves up for it or not, success and failure will happen to us over and over in life. And of course, success and failure not only happen in meditation, in retreat, but at all times. Even during vacation. There's one last success and failure example. Some time ago, Ursula and I went to the mountains in Switzerland, actually, not far from here. It's our free day. And we had a Beautiful day, gorgeous views, pleasantly warm and sunny like today. It was a wonderful, successful day, this walking in the mountains. Then just as we approached the summit where we wanted to go, uh, summit on which the highest guest house in the Alps is situated, clouds gather very quickly, and soon the whole place is enveloped in fog, thick fog. Suddenly it's gray, damp, and really cold. It's summer, but when the fog comes way up in the high mountains, it gets very cold very quickly. So we come to the place, and we go to our room, very expensive room. We made the reservation. <laughs> and we find it's very small. It's freezing cold. The bed sheets are damp. And there's mostly a cloud up there, so actually laundry doesn't dry ever, probably. And I don't know why, but in some stupid corner of my mind, I thought I was going to have a hot shower. There wasn't even flowing water. I mean, there wasn't even tap water. And we have to spend the evening in the only warm room up there. The dining hall where about 50 to 80 noisy, smoking, shouting fellow tourists <laughs> also spent their evening. It's such a disappointment, realizing that, that our beautiful mountain trip, after all, ended in complete failure. <laughs> so since we went to bed with our clothes on, <laughs> we, we woke up quite early. And we got outside and we climbed a few steps to the very mountain top. And day was about to break. The air was crystal clear and the high peaks and glaciers appeared to be really very close. And it seemed like one could touch them. And there was a, a vast sea of fog down below and the first sparkling sun rays. 
It's one of the most glorious views of my whole life. And there was an overwhelming sense that our trip really was a great success, <laughs> after all. The trip went on, and I stopped here. <laughs> the winds of success and failure come as they please. We don't have much control. So let's look at praise and blame. Maybe we knit a sweater or we make a painting or whatever. Someone will come and see it and they'll say, oh, what a great job. It's beautiful. And maybe someone else comes and they don't know we did it. So they look at it and they sort of say, oh, how gross, you know. Some people really have bad taste. (laughs) So we have praise, we have blame for the same thing. Sometimes praise and blame takes the form of feedback. Happened at the three-month retreat in uh, Massachusetts, I thought, maybe ten years ago. And there's a place where a little clip where meditators can put the note for the teachers. I'm very happy that we don't have those clips here. (laughs) Got there. One note one day, looking at the note, and the note said, Fred, thanks for your instructions, and thanks for the sentences of inspiration and the words to remind us to be present during the meditation. It's so helpful, and you do it so well. I think it was the same day, maybe the next day. There was another note. I looked at it. It said, Dear Fred, could you please shut up during the sittings? I really came to this retreat to be silent. Thanks. So, praise and blame. Whether we set ourselves up for it or not, it will happen to us over and over again in life. It even happened to the Buddha, the fully enlightened one. Some people addressed him with reverence, some called him blessed one or awakened one. Others, quite unrespectfully, called him derogative names or just maybe shaveling or something like that. Two, praise, blame. Even for enlightened ones. Next pair is good reputation and bad reputation, or good name and bad name. One becomes known for certain qualities, qualities, positive or negative, maybe among a small group of people, or in an area or country or in the whole world. Sometimes one's reputation is closely linked to one's actual qualities, But it isn't always that way. It's happened even with great gurus who were held in extremely high esteem by thousands of followers. One day it turns out they were misusing their power or exploiting their students in one way or the other. Or the other way around. There are instances where people try to set up the Buddha in ways that were designed to destroy his reputation of saintliness and of wisdom. 
Once a young man accused the Buddha in front of the whole assembly of followers. He accused him of a crime he hadn't at all committed. The young man hoped to destroy the Buddha's good reputation and then maybe take over the followers. But it's said that the Buddha at no point lost his serenity. And also it's said that the matter was immediately exposed as fraudulent for the earth began to shake and quake and the gods made a rain of flower blossoms that fell from the sky to witness the Buddha's purity, to witness the Buddha's honesty. So the young man was put to shame. It's a nice story and it may work for Buddhas. (laughs) But for us, the earth may not shake even when we are wrongly accused and the gods may not do whatever they do here. It's all pretty much out of control. Success, failure, praise, blame, good and bad reputation, remain seven and eight, gain and loss. It can apply to gain and loss of power and of control, perhaps. In terms of loss, just think of people like Gorbachev or, if you remember, Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan. Such immense power they had with TV news shows and newspapers talking about them daily. And then suddenly, almost from one day to the other, it's all gone. Such thorough loss of power, control, and of everybody's attention. I heard recently that uh, Gorbachev got a three-minute stint in a movie by Wim Wenders. Not quite the same. (laughs) Margaret Thatcher said to to a journalist uh, that interviewed her, one year after she lost her job as Britain's Prime Minister, which she had held for maybe 14 years, said, still then, when something important happened in the world, she said, I immediately take the necessary decisions. And then remember, nobody's interested in all my decisions. It's a painful sense of loss. And uh, recently Bill Clinton confirmed he was in Bern, not far from here, where he gave a speak, and apparently he said, what I like about not being the president anymore is the fact that now I can say what I want, and I... uh, can express what I feel is true. The downside of it is no one really listens anymore to <laughs> Also, there's the simple fact of there being material gains and losses in our life over and over again. We get things, we receive things, create things or things grow or they increase in value and we lose things give away things destroy things or things get destroyed or they break or they simply 
lose their value. So the eight winds blow at just about every moment of our life. Now all this seems pretty obvious and natural. Then why do these eight winds of the world create problems? As you must have realized, it's because it's all about pleasure and pain, about pleasant and unpleasant experiences the basic two winds of this world. And this is maybe one of the crucial points to understand in this practice. Because of wanting happiness and not wanting to suffer, we also want pleasant experience and not unpleasant ones. And that's exactly where all the trouble starts. And in a way, we know that quite well. And yet, it's here that we have to remember over and over again to distinguish between what's possible and what isn't. And given the fact that we've taken hold of this body somehow, however we did that, and we live in this world as we know it, there will be pleasant experience There will be unpleasant experience and there will be those in between, the neutral ones. And no matter what, we cannot change that. Not even through meditation, I'm afraid. Hope you'll stay still. (laughs) There are instances in the texts, in the suttas, where the Buddha asked a monk to please give the evening talk because he had a backache and he felt that he should lay down for a while. With this given fact understood, the obvious question then is, do we also have to be happy, unhappy, and uninterested according to the flavor of each experience? Or is it possible to be at ease, at peace, with the mind of balance and serenity, with any and all of these experiences, whether pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? And if so, how can this be done? What would it take? To find out, I think we first need to look carefully at how we relate to our experience now, how we relate to the eight winds. As long as we are randomly exposed to experiences that can stop being pleasant and start being unpleasant at any given time, we feel insecure, unsafe, uneasy, even scared. And for those of you who feel a little queasy before they go to retreat, you know, some really look forward to it and I can't wait for the retreat to start. There are others who are not so sure about it. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that we know the form will be quite strict and our ability to to manipulate situations is uh, is very limited. And that means we have a lot less control. That's unpleasant. We want security. And to get it, we need control. And we feel instinctively that 
unless we are in control, we can't be safe and somehow we can't relax. So we start looking for power and we start manipulating. And even small babies already begin to learn to do it, I'm told. They're getting quite good quite early on to manipulate mom or dad. I think Ashley Brilliant put it very clearly. He said, all I want is a warm bed and a kind word and unlimited power. (laughs) (laughs) So since secretly we somehow believe and hope that somehow, eventually, miraculously, it will be possible to make all experience pleasant and somehow eliminate all unpleasant ones. We spent an enormous amount of time and energy reacting, manipulating, and trying to control phenomena. And that's really where the tragedy begins. Since it doesn't work, it never did work, and it never will. It works a little bit. That's what's so deceiving. It makes us believe that we can make it mostly pleasant and not unpleasant. It's not true. Even the Buddha has not been able to change the facts of this life, of it being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral at different times. So we react. And here I'll be repeating what Ursula said last night. We so easily react with attachment to pleasant experience and with desire for experience that promises to be pleasant in the future, be it success or praise or fame or gain or health or wealth or just pleasant experience. We easily react with aversion, hatred, resistance to unpleasant or painful experience, or we react with fear for experience that promises to be unpleasant in the future. It's failure or blame or bad reputation or loss or sickness or poverty, whatever. And we easily react with being uninterested and yet with identification towards experience that is neutral, that is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. We don't really care for that. So there's an uh, ongoing reactivity an imbalance, a commotion, and a lack of peace within because we react with reaching, holding on, attachment, pushing away. And sometimes one can almost physically notice it in meditation, maybe not like this, but we reach out for something, we wait for something to happen, we're a little afraid, we resist. It's this endless commotion within of reactivity. And that leads to all sorts of unskillful negative actions of thoughts, of speech, and body. And with it, all the problems, conflicts, cravings, anxieties, depressions, troubles within ourselves and around us arise. In short, suffering arises. Shantideva wrote, In this world, Wild and crazed elephants 
are incapable of causing as much suffering as the suffering and torment that can be caused by the wild elephant, which is our own mind. The problem in a war is not the tanks or the guns or the Scott missiles or the smart bombs. The problem lays in people's minds, minds like wild and crazed elephants. And in many ways, that includes our own minds, not just their minds. So what to do? The solution is simple and convincing and not always easy, as we know. It consists of mindfulness and awareness and of understanding and wisdom and of equanimity. To be present at the moment the mind reacts, mindfulness is needed. And it's even more helpful to be present and aware the moment before we we react, when pleasant and unpleasant experience arises, when those winds of the world hit us. So there's some clarity already before we react with either attachment or aversion. And that's why a steady and continuous mindfulness and attention is so important and is so helpful. And that's why we practice it here. That's what we practice here. Here's a free translation of another verse by Shantideva. It says, even those who are well-versed in the Dharma, in the teachings who have faith, interest, and perseverance, will get caught in unwholesome actions when they are without alertness, without mindfulness. It's the mindfulness which we practice here with every kind of experience at any given moment. With the body sensations, such as the sensations that arise breathing or any other sensations in the body pressure, tightness, looseness, tingling heat coolness, cold, vibrating painful sensations, blissful sensations itching, throbbing, movement anything that we can immediately, directly experience what we can feel, sense Then, as the days here go on, the mindfulness will be practiced with pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality in any experience of the body, the mind, or mind states and emotions. will include being aware of all sensory experience, such as seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, touching, as well as thinking, imagining, remembering, planning, daydreaming. And it includes all mind states and mental factors and emotions like concentration or distraction, calm or restlessness, compassion and kindness or hatred, generosity or attachment, and so forth. It includes any kind of hindrance when, we, when it's present or insight one might have. And that means 
Mindfulness goes with any and every experience at every given moment. And this obviously includes all events and situations of life, inner and outer, such as the eight worldly winds. The text says about this mindfulness, mindfulness is that which in this present moment is recollecting, it's calling to mind, bearing in mind what is. It's sensing, feeling, noticing consciously what is. It's the opposite of obliviousness, of unawareness, of forgetting the present, and also of superficiality. An important quality of true mindfulness is that it plunges into the object. Maybe like a stone plunges or sinks to the depth of a body of water, doesn't stay at the surface. Unlike maybe cork that stays, that floats on the surface, stone sinks. Mindfulness, when it's the uh, stronger in its quality, it penetrates more deeply into the object. It doesn't mean we have to push it into the object. We settle very mindfully on the present experience and mindfulness will see it, feel it, sense it, understand it more and more deeply. On the other hand, when we become superficial or mechanical in our meditation, it gets boring, isn't it? That's not true mindfulness. Rather, it's a signal that we need to renew our care and interest and see if we can be present more fully. Then again, mindfulness deepens and we see more clearly. True mindfulness also is non-judgmental, non-biased, non-preferential. It doesn't say, this is good, here I'll stay, this I don't like, I'll leave. Or this experience is pleasant, so I'll stay with it, this is unpleasant or painful, so I forget about it. Or this is neutral, I'm bored with it, I don't care. Mindfulness, in a purest sense, doesn't do that doesn't mean that our mindfulness, our being present, doesn't do that. But that means there's mindfulness still with some reactivity together. And this ideal sense, mindfulness is pure, one could say, and it has a purifying power on the mind. It's an incredibly clarifying, you could say, enlightening force in the mind. It's the prerequisite for liberating insight and understanding to arise. If mindfulness isn't superficial, then what does it penetrate into? What does it understand? It's seeing into what is and gets understanding on many levels. Insights into the physical, bodily processes. Many people report that they understand things uh, in their body and the ways they work. <coughs> insight into, f- into the physical, uh, yeah, insight into the physical, bodily processes. Then insights into 
mental, psychological, emotional processes, insights into our habits, into our patterns, into our tendencies, seeing how certain patterns really make us suffer over and over and over again and understanding that and seeing how it happens. All very helpful, very interesting, very healing in many ways as insights. More fundamentally, mindfulness allows for insight into the nature of all things. Yet another level. Insight into to the true nature of all experience which make up our life. <laughs> Mindfulness is seeing into impermanence, into the constant change and the fluidity of all things. It sees the rapid change that is happening, actually happening even in our life on obvious levels. One text compares our life to a waterfall that is tumbling over a high cliff with no moment of hesitation. And sometimes when I see waterfalls, I think of that image. And you see there's many, 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 many drops that fall. And they fall one direction. And there's never, you know, some go back up a little. <laughs> or they hesitate. They have just a moment. They can just stop a little and wait before they go on. <laughs> no chance to turn back. It's an American Indian saying, it goes, What is life? It is the flash of a firefly in the night. It is the little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. Do we see that ever-changing nature? We feel and sense that moment by moment. This is really a place to look into more and more with mindfulness. And we can see that with every experience. Even sleepiness, even restlessness, even the things we don't want, we can see how they come, not being in our control. They do their thing. They change, and they disappear. Sometimes they go when we want them to go. Often that's when they stay, and they go at some other point. And that's really important to look into that. Mindfulness sees impermanence. Mindfulness sees the unfulfilling and unsatisfactory nature of all things. The fact that because things are impermanent and change, they can satisfy, they can fulfill for a moment or a few moments, or some time. But because they change, and we change, and circumstances changes, they never give a, a lasting fulfillment. And I think maybe this is also one reason why we start practicing, because there is a sense of there is something that is missing, that I'm trying to, to reach, to attain, to get, and somehow it's eluding me. So we start to look deeper. And with this, we can immediately understand that as long as we look for lasting fulfillment in things that constantly change, we're in trouble. It works for a while, but it's not going to be lasting. And thirdly, mindfulness sees the emptiness, the ingraspability of all things. Looking at 
we human beings are made up of, a text says, physical bodily forms are like balls of foam. Feelings are like bubbles. Perception resemble mirages, fata morganas. Volitional factors and mind states are like banana tree trunks. Banana tree trunks are actually not real trunks. They're just leaves that are rolled together like a cigar. You can't find any pith. And consciousnesses resemble magical illusions. And beyond that, there's nothing else. This is what is happening. (laughs) This is what we properly call I. There's not someone in addition, some me, who runs this show of of body and feelings and perceptions and consciousness and emotions and all that. Someone outside of it who has it. As Guy Claxton puts it, the lights are on, but there's nobody home. (laughs) So if what we are is a, a composition or a conglomerate, or if you prefer... A symphony. Sounds better, isn't it? The (laughs) symphony of ever-changing elements of body, mind, and feeling. If life is this ever-changing, endlessly moving and transforming dance, then reactiveness and holding on and pushing away, attachment and aversion, they don't make sense. And mindfulness is seeing, is intimately seeing exactly this, is realizing this fact realizes that holding on, that attachment to what is fluid and graspable must create suffering as soon as it changes. It realizes that pushing away, that aversion to what's out of control anyway and what follows its own laws that must create suffering. And then the mind slowly starts to accept because it understands. It starts to let go because it understands. Not because we're clever and we think we should do that. It's almost like we have to teach it by over and over connect directly with that part of reality. The mind accepts what is right now and it lets go of what isn't or what isn't anymore or can't be held on to. And in this way, equanimity is born inner balance comes into being. Like to read Lao Tzu. Do you want to improve things? I don't think it can be done. The world is sacred. It can't be improved. If you temper with it, you'll ruin it. If you treat it like an object, you'll lose it. The master sees things as they are without trying to control them. She lets them go their own way and resides at the center of the circle. Equanimity is that quality of mind that is willing and able to be present with unpleasantness, even with pain, and stays in balance, keeps serenity and peace. So we could say deep, profound inner acceptance is 
equanimity or makes for equanimity. Also, equanimity is the quality of mind that stays present with pleasantness, even with bliss, without holding on to, without attachment, and keeps its serenity, its balance and peace. So we could say deep letting go, deep letting go into life is equanimity. And equanimity also stays present with neutral experience. Yet it is fundamentally opposite of indifference and of carelessness because it's, it's sensitive, it's intelligent and alive. And no matter which wind blows, whether it's gain or loss, whether it's success or failure, praise or blame, good or bad reputation, whether it's pleasure or pain, there's enough space within to hold it all. There's enough gentleness of mind to stay peaceful with it. There's enough equanimity to keep the balance. As Duchem Rinpoche says, you will be like the vast open sky, not particularly flattered by the rainbow and not particularly upset by rain and clouds and storms. And yet that equanimity is not distant, but is in contact and is very much alive because it is willing and able to embrace all experience intimately. And one last point here. Of course we will react and of course we will lose our balance many times over and over again. We will get angry, we will get upset, we will get irritated, we will get attached to things, to people, to mind states. And that's, of course, fine, too. All we need to do, as soon as we're mindful, is to include that mind state, that experience, too. With our mindfulness, we include the falling out of balance. We acknowledge it. We meet it with gentleness. Note it gently. And we're right back on track, because in that very moment, we're again with the present experience. It's as if there were a greater, wider balance within which we sometimes fall onto one side, sometimes we fall onto the other side. But within that greater balance, it doesn't matter so much whether we fall, if we fall, because there's a kind of bigger awareness that can hold it all like a spaciousness that, that includes the fact that sometimes we're not spacious at all, but rather solid. Equanimity accepts that too. So whenever we can or we do accept with equanimity, life is as it is, very rich, very full, and quite light. Said a sen nun, when my house burned down, I got an unobstructed view of the moon at night. <laughs> whether we see more clearly whether freedom manifests or not, and whether we deepen in equanimity, all depends on our being mindful and present as acutely and as continuously as we can with great care and with great gentleness that part we 
must take care of ourselves. I'd like to close with Chantideva, who says, Therefore, I shall put this way of life into actual practice. For what can it be achieved by merely talking about it? Will a sick person be benefited merely by reading the medical text? What is so inspiring here is we're all doing it. We are applying the remedy to suffering. Thank you for your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.